And I want to thank each and every one of you. I know some of you have been praying for me and for this message. And uh, I heard Chuck Swindoll say the other day that uh, he's very thankful that it's God that uses the message and not necessarily the messenger. Because oftentimes he doesn't feel like he can preach what he's supposed to preach. And I kind of agree with that. If you don't know me, I'm not really a preacher. I'm just a pastor encourager. And so after I get done today, you'll really be encouraged to have Clint back here next week. So <laughs> that last hymn that we sang was written by Robert Robinson. There's always this question in the background of the story behind that song. Right after he was converted, he wrote that hymn. It was just a, a year or two after he was converted, he wrote that hymn. He was so joyously excited to be saved from his troubles. But then as his life went on, he kind of strayed away from church and changed churches and and different things. And let me read with you a little bit toward the end of his life. It wasn't right at the end of his life, but it says later on, having become a close... uh, I got the wrong paragraph. It says... uh, He had left the God he loved, and that's the question. Did he really do that? It says, a widely told but unverifiable story says that one day as he was riding in a stagecoach, a lady asked him what he thought of the hymn that she was humming. It was that hymn. He responded, Madame, I am the poor unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings I had then. That last verse that we sang, prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. I I don't know about you, but I think we all struggle with that. And there's a song came out recently that I've really enjoyed. You've probably heard it too. It's written by Chris Tomlin. It's called, Is He Worthy? And I heard him on the radio give a little background of why he wrote that song. He wanted a song that they could use in the church setting as a dialogue. There was a question asked, the church could respond. And I really like that, that approach. But one of the lines in there, it says, Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? And I think it is. It's good that we're reminded of this. But he goes on through the song, is he worthy? Is he worthy? And that question has been rattling around in my head for probably a year now, or maybe not that long. But it, 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 it encompasses every aspect of our life. Every decision that we make, everything that we do, should in a sense be hinged on that question, shouldn't it? Is he worthy? And probably I could go back and think some of the things that I did that were not right and probably unconsciously would make the statement, yeah, he, you know, I'm doing my own life, you know. So anyhow, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6 today. Isaiah chapter 6, and I find this a a very interesting chapter. It's a difficult chapter, I think. 
the whole theme of it, I'm going to give you up front, and we sang a lot of it. I think some of the music we sang can do much better than what I can in words this morning. But just getting a reminder of who Christ is, getting a fresh perspective. I remember as a young boy, once in a while, we'd go to Norfolk in the summertime, and they would have this thing they called the dog days of summer. And I, I remember when Hesteds and all the Stinsons and all the old stores were up there, and they would drag, I don't know, it seemed like all of their things out on the sidewalk. And there would be racks of clothes and shoes, and, and uh, people were sitting around. There was a lot of people around, but it was the dog days of summer. And I think sometimes, and, and like I said, I'm not much of a preacher, so I'm going to share with you what God deals with me, and maybe you could use it, maybe you can't, so... But I think from time to time we get into those dog day doldrums and we tend to lose sight of the person of Christ. We, we maybe even come to church and we do it in a, in a moat way and, and we just kind of do it on a schedule. It's kind of like going to the dentist. Maybe it's kind of sterile, and <laughs> David's laughing. I hope coming to church isn't like going to the dentist. Or <laughs> it, it's maybe like going to a football game. You're just going there, and you sit through it. And But do we? Or do we really come to sit in the presence of a living Christ? Is he worthy of all of my attention? I don't know about you, but in my little mind, I am so easily distracted. I can get distracted by the littlest thing. And, and I'll tell you right now, I, I am one of the biggest fans of, of technology, of having a cell phone and, and iPads and all this stuff, and my wife will affirm that. But I can get so distracted with stuff. And so I'm asking myself, and one of the application questions up front here, do we take time? to get those distractions out of the way and just focus on true worship of who Jesus really is. That's the theme for today. It appears that almost everywhere and everyone in this country today has an opinion on what we should do different. And I, I'm not going to get political in this sermon, but right to start out with, you know, there's all kinds of issues on the table. We need different immigration policies, we need a wall. We don't need a wall. We need social reform. We need different health care. We need, everybody's got an opinion. I heard there was one opinion. We need to get rid of all the cows and we need to get rid of all the airplanes and then we'd have a cleaner environment. Maybe we need different leadership. I know they've been talking about all kinds of stuff there. So there's all kinds of ideas. And in a, in a national sense, there is always those situations on the, on the front burner. And I think we're going to find out when we look into the background and the history of this chapter, they had some of the same, same things, but God was trying to get them to focus him on the forefront. My first point is arrogance tends to blind the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6, the first verse, it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. That gives us a starting point of where we're at, a timeline of what's going on in the country. And this is kind of the whole background behind my message. I am somewhat interested in history. I know maybe many of you aren't, so if I would just have a whole message of history, you could go to sleep. 
But I think this really gives us the background to this whole chapter. The time and different commentaries go back and forth in this. It's somewhere between 740 B.C. and 739 B.C. When it says in the year of King Uzziah's death, it could have been in the year leading up to it or during the year of his death. We don't know for sure. So that's why there's a little discrepancy. 740, 739 B.C. Think about what's going on in the nation. Uzziah became a king when he was 16 years old. And he reigned for 52 years in, in the southern part of Israel in Judah. They were living a 52-year reign of a very prosperous, peaceful situation for the most part. Kind of like America. We've lived in a very prosperous situation for quite some time. In northern Israel, in, in, in the northern part, it wasn't quite so good at this time. The last three kings of northern Israel had been killed by someone that wanted to take their place. Last three out of the last four, I should say. It wasn't a good situation. They were trying to do all kinds of coups and take over leadership, and they wanted to run the country up north. None of the kings in northern Israel were ever very good. So you had that, and right after that, they were actually going to come and make war with, with southern Israel. They're brothers in a sense. There was disunity there. And they were fighting over whether to give homage or give support to Assyria so that they would not come down and attack them. Because Assyria at that time was, was starting to become one of the main world powers. So here you have King Uzziah in southern Judah reigned for 52 years. Now he started out 16 under the reign of his dad in a sense. And so he reigned for 52 years. And, and the northern kingdom is, is tearing itself apart internally. Somebody else wants to be leader. They want to do things different. You have the Assyrian Empire up to the north starting to become a great world power wanting to come down on everybody. It doesn't look good. And so in the year of King Uzziah's death, this chapter is a turning point in the whole nation of Israel. They had lived under David and Solomon and different kings, and then Uzziah had this long reign of prosperity. Times were going to change. It was going to go from good to bad here in a hurry. This changed the whole background of Judah. Let me read to you just a little bit of King Uzziah's reign in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I'm going to start verse 10. He said, He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. I like that. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster. I'll go down to verse 13. Under the direction was an elite army of 307,500 men who could wage war with great power to, the help of the ki to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. And, and what he means by that is they could catapult large stones and arrows for quite a distance. It was a new invention for military war. 
down at the bottom of that, it says, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. His fame spread all over because this guy could muster unity among the nation and a military force. And then it says in verse 16, sad part of Uzziah's life, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. I won't read any further, but the priests, all the priests gathered together and said, no, Uzziah, you're not supposed to do this. Don't do that. And he did it. And the Lord cursed him with leprosy. And he was a leper till the day of his death. He lived in isolation the last 20 years of his life. Or I should say about the last 10 years of his life. His son Jotham kind of co-reigned with him during that time. So he was a great king. They had a prosperous nation. And I've heard the statement one time that out of a hundred people that can handle adversity, only one of those can handle prosperity. I always keep that in the back of my mind because you start getting a little bit proud and think, well, look at what I did. Be careful. You're stepping on dangerous soil. Arrogance blinds from the holiness of God. It takes away from the holiness of God. Uzziah, in a sense, started out well. But then he, 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 he didn't see, or his heart was prone to wander away from God. And he became strong in his own mind. Second point, it is God's desire to reveal himself. We see this in the second part of verse 1 on. He said, in that year, he said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Wow. I am amazed and I am excited that in the midst of this tragedy, at the midst of this point in history, God could have said, hey, you brought it on yourself. I'm just going to turn you over to whatever happens. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't do that with us? Aren't you thankful that in the midst of the d deepest struggle and difficulties, God is willing to reveal himself to us? Whether it be a verse that comes to our mind or a brother or sister that comes alongside and puts an arm around us and says, hey, let's read some scripture. God wants to reveal himself to us. We're told in John 1, 18, I believe. I didn't write this down in my notes, but it says that's one of the purposes for Jesus coming, to reveal the Father to us. And so if we want to see the Father, we need to look at, at him. Now, some people might disagree with me, and that's okay because I'm normally wrong. 
But this picture of, of the Lord here, I truly believe is a picture of the res- resurrected Christ. Some people would say it might be God the Father. Some people would say it might be a pre-incarnate Christ. I tend to think that it's the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Now, this is a vision, so this could be true, I think. And part of the reason I say that is later on, Isaiah said, I have seen the king. King normally refers to Christ, I think. Now, I might be wrong, and you can disagree with me, but no matter what the case, think of Isaiah in this vision, in this situation. Uzziah had come into the temple and burned incense that he wasn't supposed to. He was, uh, he had leprosy. And now, <laughs> Isaiah's brought into the presence of the Lord. And he's thinking, I probably shouldn't be here. I probably shouldn't be here. In fact, his next statement kind of backs that up. It says, woe is me, because I am ruined. thought, I'm not just going to have leprosy. I'm going to die right here on the spot. And we're going to go through some other passages here in a minute. But, but every place in the scripture where God reveals himself to a person, it is a very fearful time. And God often has to remind them, do not be afraid. I think this is huge because oftentimes we like to think about Jesus as, oh, my, my buddy, my best friend. And, and to a sense, yes, I can agree with that. And, and I've heard some comments over the years and in different places that, that give the idea that we sometimes have brought Jesus down to earth in a sense and, and just kind of made him one of us. And, and we forget his loftiness. We, we forget that it said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. What does that describe? We also see that in Isaiah 52, right before that passage, that great passage of Isaiah 53. And it says there in Isaiah 52, verse 13, it says, Behold my servant, and this is another reason I believe this is Christ, Behold my servant will prosper, he will be high, and lifted up, talking about his resurrection, and greatly exalted. For me, this is something that I need to focus on to stare at a little bit more often in my life than I do, I think. To see the supremacy and the power and the authority of Christ. Because often when I don't look at that, what do I do? I just want to give up. Or this is all wrong. Or I become bitter. Or I become anxious. Or whatever. But when the focus is not on me, when it's on him, life tends to change. When it says the train of his robe is filling the temple. Back then, if a king had a train, this is kind of like if we'd picture today a bride having a robe with a train behind it that would follow. Back then it was the king. The longer the train of the robe, the more authority they had. Some kings had just a little bit. 
Some had a little more. But here we see that his train, it filled the temple. It wasn't just a little bit long, but his authority was huge. Isaiah got great contentment, I, I think, out of that passage. That the, the authority of Christ could supersede anything else in the world. He didn't have to worry about what was going on in the nation. And we're going to see his response to that in a, in a little while. In, I, in Exodus 15, it says this. It says, who is like you among gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, and working wonders? Many times through the scripture, they were asking the question, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Do we ever stop and think, well, we got him all figured out? Yeah, I got Jesus pretty well figured out. He died on the cross for my sins, and we're good. You know, we're good buddies. Here we go, you know. No, we don't have him figured out. We don't understand the loftiness of who he is. And I know the last couple of years I've been thinking about that more often. What is that going to be like to pass through death and to come into his presence? You know, we don't like to think about that. But why not? Because we need to prepare for what that's going to be like. Why don't we start looking at passages like this and say, I want to start getting to know who he is now. As I work with people that are young, that really don't care, or people that are older, that are getting ready to step through that threshold, and they have no interest in this, I'm thinking, what's going to happen in a few days or a few years when you cross that line? Do you have any idea of the loftiness and the authority of who you're going to run into? I was going to read part of the passage, but I won't. But I thought of Nadab and Abihu. Maybe you remember the story. He's Aaron's sons. And Aaron has been uh, promoted, in a sense, brought into the priesthood. And now they're figuring all that out and trying to figure out. And Moses is, is through a vision with God trying to tell them how this is all going to take place. And Aaron's sons, they're kind of thinking, oh, this is okay, you know. And they're, they're supposed to bring fire in before the Lord. And so they just kind of do it. And there's a lot of ideas on what was happening, if they were drunk or whatever. But, but we know from the passage that they did not have a right regard for God's holiness. That they just walked in there thinking, yeah, I can just do whatever I want and it'll be okay. And God struck them dead right there. Nadab and Abihu, they started their journey and walked in and thought they could kind of joke around with God, and God struck them dead. He said, no. Whoever comes in before me is going to regard me as holy. I take this seriously. Do I take my worship time with God seriously? Or do I just kind of, eh, I got a couple minutes. Let's read a scripture or two and call it good. See why this message is about me and not about you. So, 
But God, God wants to be worshipped in his holiness, seriously. There's a couple passages, one in Ezekiel 1. In Ezekiel 1, this is, I won't read the whole thing, but Ezekiel had a very similar experience to Isaiah. And I'm just going to read a couple verses. And, and just think about Christ when you, when you look at these passages. It says, Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Another one I won't go into, but Jesus took uh, John and Peter with him up on the mountain of the transfiguration. They got to see his glory. Those are the two guys that really wrote about his glory in the New Testament. It really had an impression on them. The other one is, is uh, in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 12. This is John here, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a, flaming, like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like a sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. The splendor and glory of being in the presence of God. How often do we long for those in our everyday life? Or do we get so busy like I do and get busy with things and move on and we have little short prayers, thank you, Lord, about this, and, and we should. I don't want to take that away. Point number three. The holiness of God is what deals with sinful pride and guilt. Look at verse 5 in Isaiah 6. It says, Then I said, Isaiah is speaking, He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oftentimes, we like to go every place else but in the presence of God to deal with the stuff in our life. We go to a friend. Maybe, how does that show go? You call a friend or whatever. You, you want to go to somebody else, and, and maybe they'll pat you on the back. It's not that bad. You know, just try not to do it again. 
Only in the presence of Christ is where sin can be dealt with. No place else. Millard Erickson writes this in his, his book of theology. It says, when one measures one's holiness not against the standard of oneself or of other humans, but against God, the need for a complete change of moral and spiritual condition becomes apparent. Let me read that again. When one measures one's holiness not against the standard of oneself or against other humans, but against God, the need for a complete change of moral and spiritual condition becomes apparent. Point number four, Evangelism 101. <laughs> I didn't know how else to title that point. After, after Isaiah was cleansed, he had the burning coal on his lips. He received the forgiveness of sin and his iniquity. The guilt is gone, which he couldn't understand it. He couldn't believe it. And right before that, he's ruined but now God cleansed him. And then God says, well, who should I send? Who, who can go and talk to the people? Isaiah says, well, I can. And his message, he said, well, what should I tell them? And God says this, starting at verse 9. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. And keep on looking and do not understand Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Now, that doesn't sound like the last evangelism conference that I went to. Last time I heard a message, it was, tell them, God loves you, go in peace. That's not the same thing, is it? How often do we overlook sharing the message of what our true hearts are really like? Now, there's a lot of commentaries, had a lot of discussion on this passage. They, they said, I cannot understand why God would want to harden their hearts, because this, this message kind of does that. And I have another opinion, maybe it's wrong. But I, I don't think this is really trying to harden anybody's hearts. I think it's just trying to show what the heart is really like. I think God is trying to tell the people, this is what your heart is really like. It's dull and it's insensitive. And it, it is incapable of seeing and perceiving without me doing something. And the next several years... <laughs> That's what God was going to be doing, was opening their eyes and their ears. It was going to take a while. But I think he wanted to show them what they were really like. And I thought, I thought about Isaiah. Man, he, he says, okay, God, send me. I'll go give him the message. God loves you. No, God says, here's the message I want, I want you to tell them. Tell them they're not, going to, they're not going to hear what I have to say. They're not going to want to have anything to do with me. And they're not going to repent. And for the next 120 years, should I say that right? From 740 down to about 580, yeah, somewhere in there. 
there was going to be devastation and destruction. Isaiah wasn't even going to see it all. But God was going to do a work in them. But in the meantime, they were going to constantly sin against God. They were going to constantly be distracted from focusing on his holiness. That's what they needed. They needed the same thing that Isaiah needed. They needed to come to the cross of Jesus Christ and have their sins and their iniquity and their guilt taken dealt with. But no, it, all of us, like them, would rather go anywhere else than to be told I'm guilty and sinful. Tell me anything else. Tell me, well, I'm not that bad. But evangelism, I think, in a sense, we have to start where Isaiah starts. We have to start with the fact that we are lost. And the reason we lost is every one of us have sinned against the holy God. And we deserve hell. We deserve eternal damnation. That's part of the, part of the message of evangelism. We, live, we leave out of the message today. But that has to be the starting place. Genesis chapter 3 is the starting place, and that's oftentimes where we start in jail, Genesis 3. They sinned, they separated themselves from God, and they hid. That's where we're all at. Number five point. God is faithful to bring about the remnant. Isaiah said in verse 11, he says, Then I said, Lord, how long? Okay, how long does he have to give this great message of joy and encouragement. And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. It's going to be a long time. In fact, Isaiah never got to see the end of it. And I had, I, I told you earlier, I think when Isaiah saw the supremacy of the authority of Christ, that carried him through the rest of his life. As tradition says, and we see in Hebrews, that Isaiah was probably sawn in two. And I read in a commentary this last week with a wooden saw. I thought, now how sharp could a wooden saw be? That could take quite a while. I don't know. But, but he was sawed in two. But facing that, I think he... He still remembered the supremacy of Christ. And that vision could carry him through into eternity. We talked in our Sunday school class this morning about having an eternal perspective. I think Isaiah had that. He could preach a message that you're not going to hear, you're not going to listen. He could do that because he knew that Christ told him to. Now let me ask you a question. If God wanted to do that in our life, if he came to us and says, okay, this is the deal. You're, you're full of sin and guilt, and I want to deal with it, which he does. And he dealt with it on a cross, and now he's going to deal with us. It's going to take a while, but I want to I call you to be a holy people. And we're going to start doing some stuff, and it might take a while. Are we thankful for that? Are we thankful for the present suffering that we go through? That God wants to deal with our character and our attitudes? I thought of the alternative. 
What if God say, forget it. I'm just going to leave you the way you are. I didn't like that alternative, so I went back to the first one. I want to live thankfully that God wants to do spiritual transformation in my life. I'm thankful that God was willing to do spiritual transformation in Judah and Israel. It was, they went through some tough times, but God was willing to do it. God has called us to be holy. I thought of all, I didn't write down all of them, but many of the people in the Bible that had a perspective of the holiness of God, Moses, he told God up on the mountain, he says, Lord, if I don't see your glory, how can we continue? We need your presence. We can't continue without your presence among us. And God showed him that glory. And I think Moses was fine. I don't need to go into the promised land. I saw the glory of the Lord pass by. I'm fine. I thought of, like I talked about earlier, Peter. I think that changed his whole life up on that mountain with Jesus. I don't need anything else. I thought of John being exiled to the island of Patmos. I don't know. I'd like to ask him when I get to heaven, but were you okay with that probably because you got to see the glory of Christ? And then I, I want to finish with this. In the book of Philippians, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take liberty with the scripture again, and I hope you can chew me out later. But in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, I've got to find it first. I don't know if I'm nervous or what. It used to be in my Bible. Here, I found it. In Philippians chapter 3, I want to finish with this. There is freedom in the presence of Christ. There is freedom in, in focusing on the, on the holiness and the glory of God. I'm about out of time, so I better not read much of this. But Paul goes through verses 1 through 6, and he lists all these accomplishments that he had in his life. Okay, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and you've read it before. And he says in there he doesn't have any confidence in the flesh anymore. I think he used to. But in verse 7 it says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When did he do that? I think that when he did that is when he was carried to the third heaven. When he had met Christ in heaven, he thought, wow, this stuff I have is worth nothing in comparison to Christ. And he says in verse 8, more than that, I count all these things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is living such freedom. When you get a fresh perspective of Jesus Christ raised up high and lofty and exalted. The troubles of this world, the stuff of this world, just kind of falls off to the side. And Paul says, I can live in such freedom. You want to kill me? Man, you're going to usher me right into the presence of Jesus again.
You want to leave me here? I'm going to tell them about him. I'm going to tell others about him. I think Isaiah was somewhat the same thing. Lord, I'll preach the message you give me. That's okay because you're supreme. I don't know about you, but I felt like I needed a fresh, a fresh view of Christ high and lifted up and exalted. In the dog days of summer, I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for this passage. It came at a very critical time in Israel's history. And Lord, we live in critical times. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what this next year holds. But Lord, help us to not get so distracted in the busyness of life and everything that goes on that we, we tend to take time to, to stand and look at you, high and lifted up and exalted. For you are supreme. And you are worthy of all of my adoration and praise. You are worthy of my obedience. You are worthy of the change of my attitude and actions. You are worthy, Lord, because you have called us as a people to be holy. You have called us as a church to be holy. Lord, do not let us kick at the goads like Paul did. But let us say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, draw us into your holiness that we may live with such freedom. And I pray your blessing on everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen.